Welcome to Let's Talk with Shea Marville. Shea is an internationally certified yoga and meditation teacher, a corporate wellness pioneer and founder of the Limitless School of Human Relations. Let's Talk is a podcast about better human relations, growth, connection and hope through conversations and compassion. Hey Shea, let's talk. Thank you, JC. Let's talk. Welcome, my friends. Let's talk to Ron McLean. Ron brings more than 30 years of award-winning experience to his role as host of Hockey Night in Canada and Rogers Hometown Hockey. Ron's extensive knowledge and passion for the game of hockey, storytelling, and refereeing, combined with 30 years of hosting Hockey Night in Canada, has made him one of the country's most famous and beloved broadcasters. In 2015, Ron was inducted to Canada's Walk of Fame, a prestigious honour acknowledging the achievements and accomplishments of successful Canadians. He has a memory like a steel trap. He's always open to a conversation. Ron, welcome to Let's Talk. So Ron, let's talk. (laughs) Let's let's do it. (laughs) Thank you so much for being here. I'll tell you a story if it, the conversation goes in that direction of listening to Silken Lauman over a great distance. I was doing a podcast for the Olympics in Rio and she told a story. She was in Victoria and I in Toronto. And, uh, and just the power when you hear, like I heard you read Invictus twice. Yes. Uh, you know, there was recently I had a woman, Ida Sadu from Toronto. Oh, yes, I know her. You know her? her. A She's different book tr- list? Yes. Yeah. Tremendous, tremendous Good. person. So, Ida read a poem to me over the phone. She she just created a poem out of the clear blue uh, oh. two weeks ago and read it to me on the telephone. And there's something about that, right? Something yeah. there's, you know what? I, I think one of the positives of this wild moment that we're in mm-hmm. is is sound, is is audio, and, and how there's a return to listening to radio and, and people's voices are really important. And you can... You can tell things about people, right? Yeah, their that's voice. what Ida said, right? And yes. I, I don't know that I know that yet, but I do I know that that was a big thing with Ida. Somehow, the first time I phoned her, she spoke about the sound of my uh, whatever it was excitement. I think, but uh, yeah, it was really neat. Well, I think I, I I think one of the things that I really appreciate about you is the sound of your voice, well, and I and I know your I know your voice, right? I just oh, I know it me. now, so. So it's it's a, it's always for for a person who is um, on the radio and who's who's the commentator or the journalist. They may not love their voice, yeah. but then for the listener, that becomes part of the story. Is the voice? So I was um, very grateful and very curious to talk to you because there's been so many changes, and hockey is such a huge part of our culture right? Whether you play or not, because I don't play, but for many years, my husband tried to get me to play. I'm not sure why, because that could never happen. I can skate, but playing hockey, no. Anyways, um, I I wanted to know what your experience is as such a um, developer and storyteller and broadcaster in the hockey arena. What is it like right now? Well, I think uh, 
culturally, it's fascinating because we're going through a phase where no longer are pronouncements made from uh, on high uh, to the viewer. Uh, things are happening laterally or horizontally at exactly the same moment on the socials or via podcasts or uh, via simultaneous blogging. And that to me, Shay, has been the incredible fascination is, you know, we are accountable to a uh, an arena much greater than the hockey rink. Uh, so that's yes. got to be in the back of your mind all the time. And I just find it to be uh, an incredible time to be living because obviously the 60s must have felt this way. Uh, but to go through what we went through in the last year, never mind the pandemic, because we've been through SARS and AIDS and we've been through crises like 9 11. Yes. But it's happening in lockstep with uh, once again, George Floyd's killing kind of uh, was a. Uh, the point at which we had a serious turn on Black Lives Matter. Yes. Uh, and that kind of followed Truth and Reconciliation and Idle No More and then Me Too movement. Yes. So we've had a series uh, of social reform issues taking uh, up a lot of our uh, our space and our thinking. Uh, and I'm just doing a hockey broadcast, but all the while knowing that that's kind of right there uh, in front of me. Well, it's, it's not just a hockey broadcast. I think it is uh, one of the prominent cultural stories of Canada. And then you were, I mean, you have been involved and embroiled in a whole, I think, political reckoning um, with um, Don Cherry and, and sure. everything that, the fallout from his, his leaving. And I was curious uh, to know, you know, just where you are now, because you, you've you been called a variety of things and been called out for in a number of ways. And I just wonder how you're coming to terms with, with how you have a voice in all of this right now. Well, it, you know, it's almost, Shay, as if, uh, you know, my values were suddenly uh, laid bare. Uh, and I, I had to, you know, make a decision. It was really, really difficult because Don Cherry was a you know, I, I say a dear friend, we only saw each other during the hockey season. And I think we always knew that, you know, Don's sort of moral compass or ethical compass was different from mine, but we, we saw so many things the same way. And you know yourself, uh, when we're trying to get this right, we say to ourselves and, and to everyone who will listen, no one gets left behind, but then we turn around and we have to make a decision, which is quite polarizing. We have to decide, no, that particular person's voice is taking us in the wrong direction. And Don got caught in a situation, in my opinion, where yes. at the age of 86, he just decided enough. Uh, he, he could sort of see the writing on the wall and some of, you know, the things that he was asked to do, essentially apologize for some remarks and then take a course uh, that would help, you know, maybe enlightened right. just wasn't for an 86 year old and you can understand that uh but it left me in the lurch it left me yes. as being the judas the brutus the backstabber yes. all these different accusations uh and and honestly shay that's you know like i was telling you before we started on one of your uh, podcasts you read invictus which ends with first you talk about the or henley does about the fell clutch of circumstance which i have found myself in so many different circumstances uh and i know enough that uh if it can be corrected uh, great no need to worry if it can't be corrected no need to worry uh, right. so so experience teaches you that and then you went on to of course quote the the last part of the which is you're the master of your fate and you are the captain of your soul yes uh, and that is Ultimately, you know, you, you want to be vulnerable, you want to be truthful, you want to expose yourself to all wisdom that can come your way, but you need to have that hard shell. You, you, you just need to sort of say selfishly, uh, this is what I am about. And then, you know, let them yell like Nellie McClung, the famous five, when they were yes. advocates for women's rights, for the vote, for the ability to become a senator in Canada. 
as Nellie McClung said, state your case and let them holler. And that's right. sadly, you know, not to be callous about it and certainly not to say I've got this zest and I can look in the mirror and feel I'm at peace because I'm not. No. Uh, but, I, but I'm quite uh, seasoned in, in that war. Well, it's, it's, it's complicated, though, it, mm-hmm. it, you know, because it's also it doesn't matter how much you saw someone um, you worked with them in a subset, substantial way and you have a relationship. And, and I think we all know uh, what happens when you have relationships with people you don't always agree with. You don't mm-hmm. always have the same values with, but you have a relationship with them and that relationship uh, creates a certain um, kind of code and a, a kind of behavior that you, you try to work within and, and, and honor. And then on top of that, you have a professional character and obligation. And you're kind of always going back and forth between what's my personal opinion? Um, how do I respect someone else's personal opinion? And then what's my responsibility in the public eye? And, um, you know, I, I read a lot of the things on Twitter, uh, not too often because Twitter can take you into um, a kind of a universe that you don't want to go into. But I, I wonder how do you feel about how you're treated sometimes on Twitter and, and, what, and, and the expectations people have of you on Twitter? Well, again, you'd like to say it's, uh, you know, water off a duck's back, but it's not. I mean, I think subconsciously uh, it takes a toll, of course. Yes. Um, And that's the, you know, uh, Rebecca Solnit wrote a book recently called Recollections of My Non-Existence. Yes. You know of it? Yes. Uh, And she talks about the, the basic quandary of trying to be someone and to be safe. And of course, she sees it through the lens of uh, feminicity. She's obviously, yes. you know, when a woman walks out the door uh, and leaves the apartment and has to think, you know, what's that man across the street doing? Mm-hmm. Uh, that wouldn't even enter my mind. So that's a, a difference in our experience, a false equivalency in terms of going for a walk. But she just said, you know, to be safe or to be someone. And I run the risk of wanting to be someone or wanting to have a career in this forum. Uh, and that's what comes with it. I, I wish it weren't the case. And I do wonder how it, you know, plays out in terms of our mental health. But I, again, I just, uh, you know, I refereed Shea for a lot of years, uh, hockey. Yes. And yes. that's where you would make a call and half the audience and one team was with you <laughs> and half the audience and the other team was against you. Right. And you said to yourself, but why am I here? Well, I am here for fairness and for the good of the game. And, you know, my intentions are good. Yes. <laughs> and, yes. and you live with you live with all the backlash. And that's, you know, again, and, and just to close on the on the idea of Don Cherry, you know, like, uh, I mean, we, we did run a, for those old enough to know, we did run kind of an Archie Bunker meathead. Uh, you know, it was a bit of a spoof in a lot of ways. And you, right. know, you could see the laughter in the extremes of grapes. And I would crack jokes that were way off color, uh, in, especially insensitive in today's climate, where the person who gets to decide if it's funny is the oppressed. Right. Um, but back in the day when we were running by our privileged white male, uh, you know, sort of the laws of that or the codes of that particular order, uh, we just played our little role and everything seemed innocent. Uh, yes. But then suddenly, you know, uh, as I said, that that whole series of events started to happen where, and, and rightfully so, yeah. uh, we were called to account by a, a circle much larger than our own. And right, that's, right. you know, that's, that's uh, in the end, you, you have to listen to the larger circle. Well, and I, I also think that uh, conversations like we're having right now and being able to talk about what you experience and what someone says, how how that impacts them, I think 
um, that's really important and creating space for people to have conversations where they can be respectful, but also share, you know, that's that thing you said or that the way you said it, um, that actually impacted me in a way, it triggered something or it made me think of an experience that I had. I, I think we are in a place culturally where it's hard to do that, but I think that is part of how we grow out of this. And I, I think that, um, I, I think you've shown a great deal of uh, courage in, in facing uh, a lot of people who have um, had many comments about what you are saying or what you didn't say or what you didn't when you said it or didn't say it fast enough. And um, I do think it takes a great deal of courage to actually stand up and face that and keep going back. So I, I think that's part of the solution. Right. Um, and I, you know, I'm just, I just feel like I should say it. You didn't ask me. No, I didn't, nice. <laughs> we didn't discuss it before. Um, uh, I just think that uh, it's important for us to be authentic with one another. And authentic doesn't mean that we always say the correct thing. It means that we speak truthfully and that we are hopefully in a space where our truth is not, um, harming anyone else and if it is that that we can hear that and and move and grow grow from that i found uh i was listening to again solnit i uh, was talking with uh tempest williams they were doing a, a book review and uh the conversation she was saying that uh her brother you know very much a donald trump supporter very much uh against uh, many of the you know phrases that are out there, systemic racism and so forth. Right. And, she, and she was trying to understand why her highly educated, highly successful brother couldn't see things her way. And he said, well, it's because of the arrogance, you know, and, and that's, you know, I think, Shay, you, you might speak to this too, is uh, finding the right language. Like when you were interviewing uh, Leo Chen, is that right? Yes, yes. So Leo was talking about raising children, his four and eight-year-old, and how he wanted to teach them and he had the, you know, basically the mental curriculum, the words that he was going to use. And he realized that modeling far superior to any words that he might choose to try and educate his kids. Mm -hmm. You can't teach uh, with that language. You have to teach with your example. Yes. Very, very, uh, uh, you know, almost discouraging for those of us who are in a, <laughs> a life where we carefully choose and order our words in the attempt to, I wouldn't say manipulate, but to enlighten. And, right, uh, right. Yeah, it's a, so there again, you know, I, I looked back on that experience and said to myself, okay, I'm always disappointed in this notion that you are what you're perceived to be. I think mm. that is a tremendous prison in which mm. to live your life. You know, if you're going to go around putting on the mask in order to be perceived as something that's acceptable, uh, you're, you know, you're stuck on never being you. Exactly. Uh, and and I, I, I felt, you know, what could I have done that, you know, would have changed that perception of backstabber, Brutus, Judas, etc. Mm. Uh, it certainly didn't work. Whatever I said didn't work to sort of assuage. And yes. there's an old saying that a person convinced against their will is unconvinced still. Yeah, so I kind of accept that notion, too. I, I, I'm really <laughs> I've always been and I say to Carrie, who, you know, really well, yes. my wife and I, I've always been one of those that say expectations will kill you. So I yes. don't I don't expect a whole lot. And I do accept a whole lot uh, as part of this crazy ride that we're on this gift. Sure. This gift. And I, I think also, um, you know, it's behavior uh, and how we evolve matters more than what we say. 
what we say does matter as well. And, and you know, to the point, you know, about people who have these extreme uh, beliefs, you know, the Candace Owens and the, the people um, in the U.S. that are, you know, everything is black or white, right mm. or wrong. Um, not all Americans, of course, I'm just talking right. about a specific, specific group. Um, that, that kind of thinking doesn't allow us to grow forward into the future. And so I, I think that we have to be unafraid to address conflict. We have to be unafraid to disagree with other people and to be seen as not always on the right side, but willing to be a part of the marketplace of ideas. And um, I think that's what we're in. And it's, it's not an easy place, just like this pandemic isn't an easy place to be in. And, you know, I, I've been wondering about how you as a storyteller, you know, as, as someone who shares so much of the history, not just of hockey, but of, of Canada and what, what is happening in every community that you, you go into, how are you, like, how has that changed because of the pandemic? Well, again, you and I were talking briefly before we started about the chance to listen has been profound during this year. Uh, you know, stillness, silence, whatever you want to call it. Uh, I was blessed to be an only child. I don't know if that's a blessing because I missed out on sibling rivalry. I'd have been a lot better athlete. But but I did. Uh, I can remember my mom coming to the end of the hallway in our little house in Red Deer, and I'd be sitting there, just sitting there. And mom would say, Ronnie, is everything okay? And yeah, mom, I'm great. You know, and I, I enjoyed solitude and I enjoyed peacefulness. Uh, to think, to reflect. And I, I interviewed Matt Galloway, host of The Current on CBC Radio 1 recently, and he said he has a, a post-it note on his microphone that says, stop talking. <laughs> and it's so great. <laughs> and that's, you know, very Indigenous. The First Nations sort of, uh, I think, philosophy, you read Wagamis or uh, anybody, really, uh, who teaches, you know, and I, I certainly relied on the First Nations, uh, Chief Stacy LaForme at the Mississaugas of the Credit when I was going through the Don Cherry ordeal. Yes, um, yes. Uh, but I, I, I like their idea that you begin the day with uh, it's almost like a, a sacrament. It's a, uh, this moment of quiet uh, mm -hmm. at the at the outset of your day, uh, where you meet the world alone, mm -hmm. uh, and then you will collaborate, uh, and that's how you get through it by you know being kind with and to others. Uh, but the but the very first consecration of the day is mm -hmm. you and you alone, and the sunrise, and that that's an indigenous sort of concept that I really uh, I found the pandemic was. Thank God, right? Didn't last yes. long. I was, uh, before uh, two weeks went by, I was suddenly hosting a, an in conversation, it was called, was an online series of interviews with yes. two guests three times a week. And that was really, you know, labor intensive in terms of its preparation. I did that for three months. And then we had our bubble version of the Stanley Cup playoffs. So I've been, yeah. and Zoom technology means I can no longer say to Steinbeck Pistons, well, I'm sorry, I can't possibly be in Steinbeck, Manitoba on a Friday night. I have to be in Toronto on a, well, that's not true anymore. No, <laughs> I'm in isn't. both places everywhere and all the time because of Zoom. So I, I've enjoyed it though, Shay. I think, you know, slowing down, you know, books are uh, great because they move at the at the speed of change, whereas right. socials just ricochet around incessantly as a reactionary tool. Right. And books actually allow us to, um, you know, take space around mm -hmm. the sacred, right? That's that, that morning silence that comes from so many of the wisdom traditions is this recognition that there's a sacredness in living. And so you, you pay attention to that before you go and try to create within it. I, I wonder also just how 
how is how is it um, existing in this pace that you're now in? It used to be like always traveling, always moving. Uh, is it physically hard to to be in one place now? No, I, I don't. I haven't even noticed the difference. It's it's hard to believe. It's been a year now since I've been on an airplane. Uh, wow! And, I, and again, I I have always I don't know what it is, but uh, been oblivious a little bit to uh, that. I, I just mm. kind of live for the moment, right? And it it could be a flight, it could be uh, a job, it could be a beer and a barbecue, it could be whatever it is 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 all that matters. So I haven't honestly haven't noticed. Uh, I do miss going out to restaurants, I guess, but Carrie yes. and I, it's funny, like, thankfully our, our marriage seems to be good because we haven't been <laughs> driven crazy with cabin fever, having this 365 days of filling the void. I know Carrie misses her hockey uh, a lot and I miss that too, but no, I, I found it's an adventure. I really, uh, and, and because, uh, as I said, that whole you know, just to have gone through the Don Cherry thing and to go through, uh, and that that played out at so many levels, whether it's Akeem Aliou and uh, yes. there was a, a, issues of bullying in hockey. There's, you know, the, the whole uh, catchphrase, hockey is for everyone. Yes, yes. Which in our broadcasting industry would actually be uh, hockey is for you. We, we wouldn't right. say everyone. We wouldn't think in those. And, and that was the first order of communication that was taught to me in broadcasting is you don't say hi, everyone. It's it's just you and Shay. It's, yes, and yes. in our case, it's you, me, and the listener. Right. That's it. Um, so the, the simplification of the pandemic has been, it's been beautiful. Do you, do you think that your ability to enjoy the solitude, be with, the aloneness is related to growing up as a, as a kind of independent single child. Definitely. Uh, and yet I, you know, I was it forced me to get out there and meet my siblings were my friends next door. So I, I always am grateful for my father was there for, so we moved around a lot. I lived in Svybrook and Halifax twice, uh, Victoria, Whitehorse, Red Deer, uh, and that moving and uprooting every time I had a circle of friends and comfort, uh, it was blown up and I had to start a new that was a great gift too. So it forced me to kind of come out of my shell. I think only children speak to adults as a, as a general rule around the house, one or two. Yes, That's helpful to your communication skills. And then uh, as a result, I became uh, captains of my hockey teams and presidents of the students' unions. And you were just the yakky kid that, that people who grew up in Red Deer didn't quite understand. Uh, why is that kid so gregarious and outgoing when we, we tend to kind of keep to our backyard, but it was, a, it was a lucky break of my upbringing. And, and I think it, it suits, you know, I saw my father at the end, Shay, when my mom died in 2008, dad had seven more years of living. And the last four, uh, he was in Trafalgar uh, seniors residence yes. and he made the adjustment in a heartbeat. He was military. He knew what right. it was like to have to make your bed or to be put in a quarters. Yes. Uh, so he had that adaptability that was uh, kind of born into him and, I think it was lucky to have had the life I had as a boy uh, to, to be in the walk that I'm in. Did, did you play hockey from very young? Like right, right yeah. off yeah. the bat? My, my neighbors in Whitehorse, Yukon, uh, the Clement family, and the and the, I should mention the Riandos also, because it was Dwight Riando who came and got me and took me to the Clement backyard rink. <laughs> but my parents weren't interested in sports whatsoever. They were 
political really? science and the arts. Uh, wouldn't know anything about hockey. Uh, but a friend got me over to a rink and I was four years old and Whitehorse, of course, extended winter. Yes. Uh, I took to the game. And in those years, Shay, we didn't even have a satellite in the sky. Uh, there was the Annex satellite, I believe, went up in 68, 1968. So we would get Hockey Night in Canada on videotape, two-inch videotapes sent up to no Whitehorse, Yukon and put on. And I would watch the games as a four, five, six-year-old unaware that, you know, I didn't follow Twitter, didn't exist and didn't, <laughs> didn't even read the newspapers, of course. So yeah, it was a, it was a very innocent time and I, I loved hockey and I can't explain why I took to it. I, I, I often think, you know, I was lucky to be a good little skater. I was mm-hmm. timid. I, I didn't have, as I said, I didn't have sibling rivalry. So there wasn't much of a compete gene in me. Right. Uh, right. But, but what I did have was uh, I seemed to have an inbred, uh, gift of uh, athleticism which was surprising to have two parents who weren't right right and it, and so did you always want to play hockey like did you no. did, did, was that like a dream and a desire no, no, not, no not driven no definitely no. not I, again I, I knew I wasn't brave enough I, I just uh, you know and I would see it was a harder more physical game especially in the west I grew up principally in red deer yes uh, and I was definitely going to talk my way out of trouble not to uh, fight my way through it. So yeah, I knew it was never going to be for me. I loved sports. Uh, I, I respected everything about uh, sport, uh, but I, I couldn't see myself in it. I, yes. I could see myself as the broadcasters that, that, and it's funny because I had no ambition to get into broadcasting either, but I was going to ask you, about I thought that. I'd be a teacher, just thought I would be a teacher. I loved what, you know, again, being an only child, I relied on friends that I met Yes. And because my, my father worked shift work and my mother worked as well, uh, I think that extra uh, layer of mentoring came from teachers. They were a huge mm. influence on me as a boy. Uh, so I thought I'd love to provide that bedside manner, provide yes. that gift. You know, I, I'll tell you a funny story. There was a teacher in grade seven, Ed Shields was his name. And he was laying out the curriculum for our upcoming school year. And he said, we'll have math Monday at 10, you know, so forth. And, and he said, we'll have spelling Tuesday at 11 a.m. And we all groaned. And he said, what, you don't like spelling? And we said, no, we hate spelling. We're grade sevens. Uh, <laughs> and he said, well, I'll tell you what. I'll spell a word or I'll, I'll give you a word. And if you can spell it, then we won't do spelling this trimester. And the word was Albuquerque. <laughs> and luckily, uh, one of my classmates had been to Albuquerque, New Mexico that summer. So he nailed it. And we didn't have spelling. And I can't spell to this day, but I respected wow. greatly that teacher's connection, that that moment of trust he, he yes. created between us and him that I, I thought, I want to do that. That's the living I would love to have. And, and so in a way, obviously, broadcasting is a, a version of teaching. So how, how did you get into broadcasting? Solely a lucky break. Uh, three of my high school chums were working at CKRD, the local radio station in Red Deer, but it was a tri uh, really, television, AM radio, and FM radio, but the FM radio was just CBC. So they would bring in the CBC programming, and then in the old days, at the top of the clock, CBC would say, we now pause for station identification. And a kid in Red Deer, Alberta, would flip a lever and press a button that ran a taped cartridge that said, this is CKRD, 99.9 megahertz in Red Deer. And then he would flip the lever to rejoin the CBC network. So they needed a kid to come in and do that once an hour uh, on the hour. And my high school friends were doing it. And one day a guy was sick and said, phone Ron. He would appreciate the $3 an hour, nine hour shift, $27. 
And that's how I got down to the radio station. I was in grade 10 uh, and I was pushing buttons for, uh, I don't know how many months before they got us to read a midnight newscast on that station because they were shy of their Canadian yes. quotient. And I, I was the best of the four of us, still horrible. I'll, I'll never forget how badly I crucified the word Seoul, Seoul, South Korea. Um, <laughs> five letter word and I turned it into 12 syllables. But uh, yeah, it was a funny time and I, I got the bug. But still yes. didn't think I would do that for a living. I thought I would go to University of Alberta at the end of grade 12 and pursue yes. education and be a teacher. Right. But it just kind of snowballed. Uh, they kept offering me different gigs and it just, I never got out of it. And I finally got a call, cold call from uh, Hockey Night in Canada people in Calgary to come down and host the NHL Flames games. And two years later was at Hockey Night. And I, and I wasn't that good. That's the funny part. Like I, I stumbled around Shea for about four or five years at least uh, feeling like I was really going nowhere, horrible anxiety. I, I coped with a lot of anxiety in my young career. And then I just seemed to fall into this break where a gentleman named John Shannon said, we'd like you to audition for the Calgary Flames, like out of the blue. And I go down, nine other commentators, we go through our series of tests and I somehow get the gig. Interesting. If as a board, deer in headlights, but I got through. Well, when you say anxiety, what, what, oh, how did you? flight, yeah. So, so you just would feel like you just, you could the just surge the surge would start that uh, my heart's yes. going to go a billion miles an hour here and I'm not going to be able to prevent that and I I hated it yes. and I you know I was young and I was probably living a little hard might have been mm. booze or pot I, you know I, I I got off pot almost right away because I found it affected my memory I don't use yes. a teleprompter never have and I felt that there was something about uh, marijuana for me that was yes. really bad in terms of my memory and I rely heavily on it uh, right. but I but I would be like all of us you know we were Red Deer High School kids, we were drinking and, you know, I think a combination of bad living and deprivation, sleep deprivation, mm -hmm. um, just led to, but but that anxiety uh, kind of extended. Uh, I got it. I first experienced it around 17 or 18, the attacks, and of course, kept quiet about it. Nobody spoke about their vulnerabilities in those years. Yes. And that lasted all the way till I was in my mid thirties, I would have these onsets of, uh, of a panic attack. You know, I, I'd be introduced and now here's your host, Ron McLean to do the national hockey league awards. Yes. And it starts, you know, this oh yes. my God feeling. And I just, I, but I like, like the, how did uh, you, how did you conquer it? I just kind of got to, I think a place where I finally got out of myself. I finally mm -hmm. started to think about the viewer just trying to have a day off and enjoy themselves uh, and stop thinking about how you are, presenting you know I, I got out of that idea of you are what you're perceived to be yes yes and and I, I it really rescued me there was no sports psychologist no doctor nothing no medicine it was purely a case of either I exhausted um, panic attacks ability <laughs> yes. or I or I came to a, a new sort of uh, I, I mean I understood a few of the triggers maybe too much caffeine or sleep yes, but, yeah. but I didn't really know what recipe that would no. you know would were you did you know what it was though when you were experiencing it uh, eventually I heard about other people having anxiety attacks and I got right. to understand but I, I remember she had a pivotal moment in my career in Red Deer so I'm probably 20 years old maybe 21 and I'm at a stereo shop on the North Hill in Red Deer and my job is to go on four times an hour for one minute and represent that stereo shop with an ad a live commercial and I got into the first commercial, you know, they have these beautiful turntables on sale for $99. And then the attack started to well up in me. And by the 32nd mark, I couldn't talk. And I could hear the DJ back at the station saying, Ron, Ron McLean, are you there? 
you know, Ron, yes. are you there? And the people in the store are looking at me, including the owner of the store. And I'm, I'm like gone. I can't, I cannot speak. I, I'm so overwhelmed with this. Paralyzed, problem. paralyzed. Yeah. Yes. And they, they put on a record and I have now like 12 minutes to reload or reboot. And they're going to come to me again. And in those 12 minutes as a 21 year old, I, I saw my career flash before my eyes. Sure, and I thought sure. you're, you're going to have to muscle your way through this somehow the next time when it swells and it's going to, yes. you just got to keep going as best you can. And if you, did you ever have one? Have you ever had a panic attack? I, the last time I had a panic, pa yes. And the last time was 26. Uh, and um, I was working on a really important project and I was feeling overwhelmed and my mother used to have panic attacks. So I knew what it was immediately. Um, but I would also start to really intensify my meditation practice. I started mm -hmm. to really study. I started to study with some of the, the teachers of John Kabat-Zinn. That's when I really got in, invested in mindfulness because I found that it helped me with my feelings of anxiousness. And for me, I used to suffer from insomnia. And it wasn't until I was able to understand what the core of the insomnia was, what my fear was about, um, that I was able to then change change the behavior. And so that's why I'm such a huge advocate of, of wisdom traditions like meditation, mindfulness, yoga, because I think they are sort of very accessible tools um, that anyone can use, doesn't matter who you are, and it can actually change uh, how your your physiological body responds to stress. So, and I and I had none of that. I didn't have the tools. <laughs> uh, I wish I did. Um, now, to this day, I've read a lot, you know, of uh, Buddhist, uh, Taoist uh, wisdom, and uh, and I've tried meditating, uh, but. To, to no real great success, not because I haven't really applied, you know, it's like when Leo you, Chan was saying, it takes seven years to get Yes, but, but, but you run, right? You, you yes, run. yes. I mean, and, and, and that's a form of meditation. And for you, sure, you're like, really, I know because I've seen you running while I was walking. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I've seen you running. Uh, and I, I think you look like you're in your zone. I, and I wonder when did you start uh, running? 1993. So around, the, that's a great point. That's kind of uh, when I'm 33 is when it starts to vanish, the panic attacks. So you're, you're brilliant to perceive that. Uh, yeah, it was, I was doing an event in Peterborough, Ontario, Paul Coffey, a great NHL hockey player. Yes. We're doing a learn to skate video with Marianne Watkins, who was a oh. power skating instructor. And I looked at Paul Coffey and he was basically my age. And I thought, okay, Ron, what have you become? You're getting a little too heavy. Uh, you're, you're just, you know, burning the midnight oil. Uh, yes, yeah. you, you need to start to do something to take care of yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's when that started. I, I began with running and, uh, you know, I started playing hockey again because I was a referee, but I wasn't playing the game. And uh, yeah, I just started to do weights uh, by 2003. I began, I had done a few weights in my home, but yeah, I just started to take, better care physically of myself and and that's my version you're right of uh of just a slow down a, a learning I, I love that if there's nothing i have gained or if there's something i have gained it's the idea of living with things that bother you uh oh. and not letting them overwhelm you well for certain and you know this pandemic is is that it's the, it's living with 
very uncomfortable things Mm -hmm. and and there's no one in the world i mean for the first time in our like global history everyone to a certain degree is experiencing the same larger narrative which is the pandemic and it's uncomfortable and for some people it's tragic and for some people it's um it's confusing it's you know there's a lot there's a it's disturbing there's a whole range of experiences but there's learning to live in spite or despite what you're experiencing that's uncomfortable. And I think there's some great learning that's happening right now, even though it hurts. Right. To learn. Yeah. Uh, yeah. My experience like that was the Humboldt Broncos, you know, the bus crash. Uh, oh, that was devastating. It oh, was. My. And to, and to, to kind of oh. be around this, uh, I mean, I always, refer to it as, uh, and it's a Rebecca Solnit line, a paradise built in hell. Uh, 13 survivors, 16 uh, deceased, you know, and so the broken, the bereaved, uh, the various states of uh, survival. Um, that was a real uh, blockbuster to live with uh, for the last two years, uh, now three, mm-hmm. coming up to the anniversary on April the 6th. Uh, but yeah, I, I just, I watched, uh, you know, sort of from a distance and from close proximity, how everyone was coping with that particular uh, situation. And it was a precursor to uh, much worse, I think, Uh, but not for, I mean, there are, as you said, there's tragedy around this pandemic as well. Uh, Yeah. These, this has been a really interesting stretch. It has. And I think, I think there's also uh, because we are adapting even without, without consciously being aware. And even though we feel so many of us feel forced into adapting to these new realities um it's also growing it's causing us to stretch and and become something else Mm -hmm. and i do think um what we do while we're going through this is what is going to create what we are when we come out of it so um and what i mean by that is i don't think this is a time to you know crawl into a hole and, and wait for it to be over. I think this is a time to make something of whatever it is that you have. And that, that might be, you know, make yourself better, or that might be, you know, make your relationship better, right? It's, it's not just about what you do professionally or, you know, in your education, educational or work life. It's just about who we are as human beings. So I just, you know, it's, it's, I just think it's a fascinating, fascinating time. And, we are witnesses and also experiencing it at the same time, you know. I think back to the 60s and what that must have been like. And I remember uh, right after John F. Kennedy was assassinated, uh, the singing nun from Belgium released a song, Dominique, and it topped the charts for three weeks. And nobody understood a word because it was sung in French. And uh, <laughs> But it was just a, a nice escape, uh, that song. And then the British yes. invasion happened. And then... Right. Uh, so many things happen in that particular window that that must have been our parents, uh, you know, to experience Selma and to experience a lunar landing and the summit series yes. and uh, FLQ. And yeah, I, I think, you know, even, even with the pandemic, I read where Daniel Defoe who wrote Robinson Crusoe wrote mm-hmm. a book called preparing for the pandemic. Uh, and he had gone through uh, 1665, I think was one of the major plagues of London just before the great fire. And, and again, it came down to uh, medical professionals advising one way and the rights of humanity and business 
kind of representing the opposite side of the coin and them going at it and everything, as they say, nothing new under the sun. Nothing new, except I think, you know, we are. Yeah, hopefully. Yes, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, nothing new, but but our, the ingenuity of being a human being is that we're always, we're always, always creating. I do wonder also, though, and I've, you, you said you lost your mom in 2008, right? Mm-hmm. And, yes. And then, and then dad, uh, seven years later. Do you, was that a really transformational period for you because you were um, an only child or had they lived away from you for so long that you were prepared for it? Yeah, good question. I think that I was, I felt a little bit uh, like, wow, this is all all of your, the folks you grew up with, the Tom Petty's, the Glenn Fry's, the David Bowie's gone uh, yes. a lot of the hockey heroes the Gordy Howes the Jean Bellavos gone yes um, so that that was all kind of you know facing mortality was part of seeing mom and dad die um, they had prepared me well for uh, you know again honestly Shay my mom who who didn't brook BS she was a real straight shooter but she had an amazing gift people would come and sit at our kitchen table and within minutes, it was like a confessional. They were pouring out their life story. And so mom was a very good listener and seemed to have such a compassionate way that the people were accepting of, but she was funny. Uh, and she would, she would get mad at me when I was a little boy. And then she would come and sit at the end of my bed at night and just apologize and say, Ronnie, I'm sorry. It's not you. It's me. I'm, you know, under whatever stresses and uh, just losing my patience for whatever reason, more and more lately. And, she just showed me such vulnerability as a, as a, a mom and as a human being and as a this smart, brilliant woman that I saw her as. And, yes. and she would be, Shay, a woman that probably felt, what did I do with my life? I was suburban housewife uh, following my husband's career because you couldn't have both men and uh, husband yes. and wife in the military. So I think she felt a little bit of longing for a, you know, a greater purpose. Yes, yes. She was, but she, but to those who knew her, just very brilliant. And that, that, that particular thing that she would do to say, I'm sorry. And uh, here's how I'm feeling, how vulnerable I am. Uh, prepared me to have that feeling later when they were gone. Right. Uh, I, I just, I just, again, expectations will kill you. Uh, so yes. I, I don't, I, I just kind of float around, not that I'm fatalist, but I, I do float around thinking uh, again, wow, lucky. I, I, I do remember distinctly being about 12 years old thinking, I wish this wouldn't end. Not Peter Pan principle, but close to right. it. Just yes. thinking, God, I'm lucky to have a, a loving mother and father. And uh, that nest isn't going to last much more, you know, than eight or so years. So be grateful for it and then see what comes. Yeah, it is. Um, death does really um, make that clear how, mm. how uh, fragile and brief life is especially when it's good and and you've had something really sweet uh with with a parent i wonder also how have you changed as you've gone through like now you've come you've gone through a year of this pandemic and and being a storyteller within this year creator of or sharer of of experiences what comes next for you not sure. I've never been a great planner, but I will say that, uh, you know, I read extensively on Black Lives Matter subject, uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates, Between the World and Me, Brian Stevenson, Just Mercy. I'm reading uh, Prophet of Wisdom, which is the story of Frederick Douglass, the great abolitionist yeah. and woman's advocate. Uh, you know, he has this line that uh, within each of us, 
is the prophet uh, who's forever whispering that beyond the seen is the immeasurable unseen. Uh, and I kind of buy that, you know, that uh, I hope that uh, I can find that unseen. I, I, I just love the, the um, circumstance in which we find ourselves right now trying to sort through these issues. Uh, I look at, you know, like we all do with when you see the U.S. election and that sort of, gosh, 74 one way, 74 million the other way. Yes. Uh, couldn't be more polarizing. And how do we bridge that divide? Yes. How do we find the language to to bridge that divide? Or do we, you know, or, or do we just li- live by example and, and hopefully it plays itself out? That That's what comes next is, is trying to have a role to play without, you know, being, you know, a martyr about it or self-aggrandizing yes, yes. about it or thinking that you're something that you're not, you know, I'm just right. a human being who likes to have a beer and a barbecue, but uh, I, I will read like uh, I've never read before to try and prepare for the platform that I have uh, has responsibility. And if I'm going to do this, then I'll have to think, you know, about it. That- One thing I do get uncomfortable with, and I, I can, I feel like I can say this to you comfortably is that, I, I don't like when people say, you know, as a black woman, I feel this, or as a white man, I feel this, or as an age, I just think we're human beings. And we, we, we have experiences because we're racialized, right? Or because we have a culture, a, a social construct like gender, but, mm-hmm. but we are also more than our social construct. And so I, I wonder about how you are experiencing, um, you know, being who you are, not just your platform, but just mm-hmm. being a human being going through some of, of this cultural conflict, right? Well, uh, okay. I, and I, I do love what you said there. I, I think I always had, Carrie will vouch for this, this notion that we are all the same. Yes. Uh, why, why are we painting it as an issue of black and white or man and woman? Surely to God, she sees the world as I see the world, has the <laughs> same needs and so forth. Um, and as you said, there are cultural constructs or, or experiential constructs that change, you know, the, the way you go about uh, your living lens. your life. That's right. But, yeah. but that's, that's as far as that goes. Uh, so, I mean, and even this whole uh, social justice situation is a, it's a bit class warfare. It's a, there's so many layers to, yes. you know, what, what is happening right now in front of us. And, and so, but I, I still think it's an exciting, uh, you know, in me as a boy, uh, wide world of sports was a huge influence. It was seeing, you know, that in Ireland, they loved Hurley and in Australia, they loved Australian rules football. And in Pakistan and India, they were great at field hockey. And I love that. I love yes. the flavor of the different nations. We love the foods of the different nations. We love the music and the dance. Yes. So, but you know, th- there was a, a little bit of a arm in the air about melting pot or mm-hmm. whatever word you want to use uh, for multiculturalism uh, that, you know, it, it was always uh, difficult to sell it uh, without it being exploited as a maybe affirmative action or maybe, you know, because no, you know, you don't want to be considered a token representation of a of an agenda. Right. Complicated, right? It's also complicated. It's very, very complicated. And it's and it's uh, there isn't one answer, I don't think. And that might not be the politically correct answer that there isn't one answer, I think. You know, I worked once, um, well, for many years as a researcher at the Science Center, and I, I had um, the anthropologist Wade Davis uh, come in and do a number of programs, and I, you know, read all his work and 
had the honor of, of, of just talking to him and, and, and learning from him. And one of the things he talked about then was how he had never met a person who was like another person in all of his work, that there were, at that time, there were about 6.8 billion people on the earth. And he said, you know, there's 6.8 billion ways to be. And I think there are 7.8 billion ways to be. They don't, now, they don't fit into all the right political agendas. But, But I think once we get to a point where we start to recognize the, um, the uniqueness of all human beings and the right of all human beings to have the same treatment and dignity and, and access to healthcare and education and you know every opportunity. I think that's actually when the world is going to get much better. And I don't think that's a, a dream. I think that's possible as long as those of us who believe it are actually doing what we can to make it happen, so. Yeah, I think that's that. You know, you bake a cake together, uh, and, yes. and it, it's just that simple. You don't you don't have to do anything overly complicated. But there are, you know, and you've studied it, uh, and that was like that was a neat thing with Leo Chan again to get to that conversation about aging a person, you know, to sixty years via computer and AI. Yes, like I'm I'm in an incredible, uh, and you are too. Uh, I, I'm reading George Dyson Analogia, which is about the oh. epochs. You know the, the from the Industrial Revolution right through. He's a guy that went off and built kayaks, you know, based on the Bering Strait and he yes. lived in a tree in, in Vancouver, but he studied uh, artificial intelligence and about technology and our ability to control technology. That's all happening too, right around me. Like our, our, our hockey broadcast will be a sports bookie, uh, more than a hockey broadcast within a year to two years because yes. gambling will be the new revenue stream. And and everything will be, you know, put your phone to the QR code and let's know your data and let's exploit you in ways that you don't even know. And it's like, wow. Uh, so on the one hand, I'm supposed to be uh, this white knight uh, preaching whatever, some moral compass. Uh, and and uh, on the other hand, I'm can I just get your data so that I can force you to bet on this third period? Uh, so I, I don't even trust the media I'm representing. And yeah. that's, those, are, those are funny, funny uh well, we're again we're, just be aware, right? Yeah. Yes, we we have to be aware and we have to be present and able to adapt, be agile for the real part, which are the people, but then what's happening in terms of technology, which is like Marshall McLuhan said, you know, mm-hmm. the, you know the um, the tools that we make will will make us. Uh, I'm paraphrasing, yep. um, but but I do think that's what we're living through right now. Listen, I know that you're quite busy. I'm very, very grateful for your time. I could continue to sit here and talk to you and keep using the word wonder over and over again. Um, I continue to be curious about about where you're going to go. I'm grateful that you're doing the work that you're doing it, doing with the courage that you're doing it with. And um, I wanna wish you continued health, wellness, and success. Thank you for being on Let's Talk. Thank you for joining the conversation. To learn more about Limitless and she and her corporate training, life coaching, keynote engagements, and her most recent podcasts, go to www.coachshamarville.com.